Amen. Thanks, Tim. My wisdom extends to knowing that exotic Solero is indeed the best ice cream alongside a newcomer that uh, I've only discovered this year, which is Honeycomb Cornetto. Come across those? Absolutely the best. Nothing else will do. Evening, everybody. Very good to see you and uh, well done for coming through the warm into the relative kind of cool of the room. Kind of, it's, it's warmer up there, probably down here. Feel free to come down. The fans are... Free. Um, in a previous incarnation, I was a teacher, some of you know that, up at the college, and I know teachers aren't supposed to have favourite pupils, favourite students, but so let's just say I found that the most interesting and stimulating of all the students that I had the privilege of being involved with over about 12 years up there was a Kazakhstani Russian guy called Sasha Shinkarenko. Um, he was an extraordinary bloke, and I'd love to say more about him, but for the purpose here, I'll just say that it was a colleague of mine, a physics teacher, who was on top of a mountain in Kazakhstan when he came across this young man, who was about 16 at the time, translating uh, for the visitors, who was doing trekking, and he spoke Kazakh and Russian and, and very, very good English, and my colleague was very impressed, phoned up the headmaster of the college and said, I found this guy, uh, he's got a very interesting story, could we educate him for two years at the college? The headmaster said yes, so he came over, and he was extraordinary, he was super inspiring. For the next two years, uh, not least, by the way, because he was a brilliant tennis player. He was like the Medvedev of his generation, but his, his muscles had outgrown his bones, so he, he couldn't play for the previous two years, and then he, he started playing again with, when he was with us. Sport always gives you plenty of credibility, so already that put him on a certain level. But the thing was, he was a passionate, passionate follower of Jesus, absolutely unashamed, full-on, uh, loved the Lord, was full of the Lord, wanted everybody to know this Jesus whom he had discovered. And in his boarding house, there were 60 boys, pupils, and uh, within a fairly short time, he had 30 of them gathering for prayer and Bible exploration before breakfast three or four times a week for the, the period that he was at the college for a couple of years. He was an absolutely extraordinary bloke. Turns out that his story was, of course, he'd been living in a totalitarian state, um, not very popular, actually, the ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan, da, 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 but he was at school, and he, was, he had his chemistry book and science book, textbooks, and at the end of every chapter of his uh, science textbooks, it said, and this proves there is no God. And this proves there is no God. And this proves there is no God. It's what he grew up with in education, as did all the kids in his class. And after a while, he was just thinking, his, his attention was drawn to it. Why does it say that? Who is this God anyway that we're not supposed to think exists? And is somebody afraid of this God? And he kind of, his curiosity had the reverse effect of it. His curiosity was around. God, God's Holy Spirit was kind of nudging him in a direction. He met up with an, an, an illegal um, American missionary in his capital city of Almaty. They began secret meetings, and he decisively, completely found himself just uh, overwhelmed by the love of God, compelled as a, as a quite a scientifically oriented guy to... Uh, accept that, that Jesus was who he said he was, accepted him into his life, it transformed his life, and he, from that moment on, was just a completely different guy. From that moment on, he was immediately thrown out of his family, he was ostracized, he had a very, very rough time back at home, came uh, obviously over here, he's a bright guy, he, he read sciences, of course he did, uh, got good A-levels here, did a science degree, medical degree, and he then went back to Kazakhstan to fulfill the calling upon his life, which he believed that God had shown him, which of course was to be a scientist, a medical uh, doctor and missionary, and to my, not to my, I've lost touch with him now, but I don't know if Ali's still in touch, but she knew him as well. Um, to, to my knowledge, he's still in remote regions of Kazakhstan, uh, healing people uh, through medical science in Jesus' name, but also telling them about Jesus. How cool is that? How cool is that? 
And uh, the reason I'm telling the story, of course, is that we've come this Sunday to the last of the big questions that we are looking at just a little bit, these big, big questions. Uh, it's like taking a little sort of thimble full of, of, of water from the Atlantic Ocean of what we could do if you had more time. Uh, but the big question is, okay, so is uh, there a conflict between faith and science? Is, are these two things in conflict? It's the reason for telling the story of, of Sasha. And we're coming to the end of a, a bunch of other questions. If you've been around, you'll know what they are. Of course, that question gets expressed in a whole number of different kinds of ways. There's the fairly kind of, if I may call it, the childish primary school end of the spectrum, which is kind of, you know, oh, Jesus wasn't a real person, or um, uh, science has disproved Christianity kind of you know, level, which is you know, uh, unhelpful because it's just clearly unhelpful and wrong. Um, but through to the more sort of sophisticated ones around assertions that scientific people might make about, say, uh, the origins of where we come from or how you discover truth, which do conflict on the surface with claims that the Christian faith might make. And, and they come in a whole uh, variety of shapes, forms and sizes. The thing that seems to be true, quite commonly held view at least, is that these two things are at war. A very rudimentary Google search will tell you that these two things don't mix. There's this thing called science, this thing called Christian faith, and they don't mix, like a bunch of other things that just don't mix. In my experience, personal experience, uh, forks and electric sockets, um, baths and mobile phones, diarrhea and long coach journeys, uh, my foot and a lump of Lego, and of course the prime example of two things that should never ever mix and clearly don't, which is pineapple and pizza. Oh, I know, we've, no, 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 we're, we're going to convince you one day. I don't know how you relate to this. When you heard that the big question today was science and faith, uh, I wonder how, what your reaction was. I, I don't know, you don't need to tell me, but it's kind of, oh, yeah, maybe, or, oh yeah, really interested in that. We might have a variety of reactions to, to, to this whole thing. Some of us might be really well thought out, way more thought out than I am. I'm no expert in this area whatsoever, but you, you are, and you, it's kind of your passion. You're very thought through on, on the whole thing. Some of you kind of have, kind of sort of think you maybe know what you like, but please don't put me under pressure, or what about my friend who might ask me some questions? I'm not quite sure how I would answer them. That kind of thing, or maybe all points in between. Is there a conflict between uh, Christian faith and science? Well, I'm sure there's some more diplomatic ways uh, to put this, but I'm just going to say no. <laughs> if I could just say it like that. Um, could ask the question, what do you think? What do you think? I'm just going to say no, that absolutely isn't a conflict between Christian faith and science. I think to picture these two things as, as some kind of battleground, there's a war going on, where on one side you can, you know, you, you're into the whole science thing, on the other side you're in Christian faith thing, and the two don't mix, is simply a distorted, wrong, I'm, I'm going to say demonic kind of positioning of the two things, which just undermines the reality, the true reality of, this, of the whole situation. But these things seem to be kind of pitted together, and we're going to try a little bit just to understand why they, they absolutely don't need to be. Remember, the enemy of our faith is never people. I just need to say that. The enemy is, is the enemy, not, not uh, people ever. But science and, and faith, they mix just as easily as two hydrogen atoms and, and, a, and an oxygen, oxygen one that make water. They mix that easily. Of course they do. I say, of course they do, but I want us to believe that even more profoundly than we probably do already, and just to be a little bit more equipped, maybe, to handle some questions in this area. Uh, but as usual, there's a bunch of resources back there on the website in all kinds of other places that are good. There'll be some resources that are not good. So be selective, be discerning. I'm going to recommend this, if I'm just going to hold up one volume. This is by a mathematics professor called John Lennox, 
Uh, Mike referenced him this morning, and by the way, if you want a, a very kind of you know big-brained approach to this subject, uh, Mike spoke about it this morning. Can science explain everything? Can science explain everything? There's a few copies back there. That's a good, simple, accessible, one-volume book. But uh, before we take a look at this supposed battleground, which I'm saying is not a battleground at all, I want us to start with the Bible. Apostle, uh, the Apostle John, this verse is going to come up on the screen. John 20 is writing, and this is right at the end of his account of the life of Jesus as he witnessed it. This is from somebody then who's up close and personal, remember, to the life of Jesus over three years. And this reminds us why the whole thing matters. He says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, people like me, he's saying, John, which are not recorded in this book, but these ones are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Absolutely love that he writes that. It's quite a scientifically type statement in a way, isn't it? One of the things that scientists do, or the ways that you could describe what a, a scientist does, is to follow the evidence wherever it leads, being open to the outcome when you arrive at it, even if that outcome is not what you expected. Would you agree? That's a, that is a, a one way of describing a scientific approach to, to life. And John is saying, there is a load of evidence. There's a bunch of things that people witnessed and saw in the life of this man to show that he is the one who he claimed to be, that he is actually the Son of God in, in heaven, here on earth, who shows us what the Father is like. Luke, the, the doctor who wrote another account, as you know, said it, it kind of, his account is even more kind of particular and detailed as you might expect from a medical doctor. He's saying, follow where this evidence leads. Where's this evidence leading, says John? And John's motive is much bigger than just solving a puzzle. I hope, friends, as important as it is to get, wrap our brains around some stuff, even on a really hot evening in, in, in late July. We might be better off doing this in, in December when our brains are cool, not frazzled already. But let's just wrap our brains. You know, give, give me 15 minutes. Just wrap your brains around it. We, it's good, as good as it is to do that, I'm going to say this. God is not after bigger brains so much as bigger hearts. Very good to have bigger brains, really good to understand, but if our, if our brains expand more than our heart expands, we'll find things in the wrong proportion. Because the Christian faith is not one that has to be cerebrally understood in order to be grabbed a hold of. As John is saying here, it's about life. So here's his motive. Here's the bigger picture than just an interesting academic question for a Sunday evening. We need to get what's at stake. He is saying the thing that's at stake here is the thing called life. Did you spot that? Life. What's the opposite of life? Death. That's the consequence, says John, to this. True life here on earth and life forever in heaven one day, he claims that elsewhere, can be found only one way. That way is Jesus. And Jesus said it himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. That's what he claimed and that's what John therefore is passing on and giving evidence of. So the point of this kind of exploration then, how do faith and science relate? cannot simply rest in our notebooks and, and journals and, and brains and, and at the level of good argument and so on, as, as important as that is. Uh, that is definitely a part of it. But what's at stake, bigger picture, I want us to remember it, remember it for the next 15 minutes, is life, says John. It's life that we grab hold of who Jesus is. We, we follow the evidence to wherever it leads. And he's followed the evidence and he's presenting evidence for him. The, the evidence led to an outcome that, that Jesus is who he says he is and it changes absolutely everything. 
Let's dive in with a few headlines. So you can't be a real scientist and a Christian at one level. So that's, that's the next level down from the question. Is there a conflict? Well, if there is, then you can't be a real scientist and a Christian. We'll deal with this one fairly uh, quickly, if we may, because I think it's quite easy to deal with. More charitably, we could say the question is, the further you go as a scientist, then the, the less likely you are to uh, believe in God and, and, and buy the whole uh, Christian message. Well, my dad taught me physics. I was in his uh, school. He taught in a school. I was in that school. He taught me physics for three years in the classroom. He taught me Jesus at home all my life growing up in, uh, with him. He was a very good physicist. He did a degree at Cambridge, um, taught physics for 150 years in the, in the same school. He worked every day, by the way, in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge when he was a student there, which is still there now. If you go to the Cavendish Laboratory, which is one of the most famous, ask any kind of you know, relatively qualified scientist. That's, that's one of the most famous scientific establishments in the entire world, has been for years, still is, over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory. Guess what's printed? Psalm 111, verse 2, that says, Great are the works of the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. And they're pondered by all who delight in them. I'll come back to that. If scientists are effectively exploring Nature, exploring the physical world in, in various kinds of ways, putting it under a microscope or a telescope or whatever. They're exploring works for sure. They're exploring the physical world. This, this verse says, greater the works of the Lord. They're pondered by all who delight. That's on the Cavendish Laboratory. Nobel Prizes, you've heard of them. We've all heard, heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. You probably know that the Nobel... Oh, you've jumped the gun there, Harry. I was, that's my punchline kind of statistic right there. <laughs> But there are Nobel Prizes in all kinds of things. Would it interest you to know that they did a survey of 100 years worth of Nobel Prize winners, the most brainy scientists and literature people of the last century, from 1900 to 2000, and asked them about faith, or discovered from uh, what they'd written about their faith. Of all of the chemistry prize winners, for example, Nobel Prize winners, the biggest prize, the biggest boffin scientist, chemist in the world. What percentage claim Christian faith out of 100 answers? 72.5% Christians. The number for all Nobel Prize winners is in the high 60s. Physics, it's about 68. Lowest is actually Nobel Prize for literature at about 50%. You can't be a real scientist and a Christian. We've got to do better than that, or the, the critics have got to do better than that in the questions. Slight advance then on the objection, let's, let's get it a bit deeper. It might go something like this. Science is the unstoppable force for human development that delivers answers to our questions, it solves our problems, it explains pretty much everything, or it's on the way to, and at some point, presumably, will explain some of the really big questions that we still want answered, like where do we come from and what are we here for? Belief in God, then, is old-fashioned. It belonged to the times when people didn't know, really know this stuff. They didn't really understand all this kind of stuff. So they kind of filled in the blanks in their understanding with a thing called God. Hence a phrase, the God of the gaps, by saying God did it as a kind of filler explanation until we have a better one, right? But as our scientific knowledge increases, so the, the gaps get smaller, so our need for God the God of the gaps disappears. That's how the argument kind of runs to some extent. So the sooner, frankly, we get rid of God, the better. It kind of sounds a bit logical, doesn't it, on the surface? It kind of sounds like a viewpoint. But it is so loaded with misunderstandings and assumptions, that argument, uh, that it's almost ridiculous. Uh, by the way, it starts again with an assumption that science and faith in God stand in opposition. It starts with that assumption rather than 
what is good for a scientist to say, well, what, where does honest inquiry take us? Where does the evidence lead? Am I prepared to follow where the evidence leads, even if I'm not sure of the outcome? And all of, <coughs> all of this is relatively recent, of course. We should remember that just in terms of the scope of history. This is all pretty recent because um, a great many of the pioneers of modern science over recent centuries still today were believers, strong believers in Jesus. Back, back to that point. So you've heard of people like Galileo and Kepler and Pascal and Boyle and Newton and Faraday and hundreds if not thousands of other very eminent people. In fact, it's not just that they tolerated their Christian faith while they did their science. Their Christian faith motivated their inquiry into the scientific things that they were called to study and do. Here's Kepler. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order that has been imposed on it by God and which is revealed to us in the language of maths. Anybody speak the language of maths? That's not my, not my language, but it was Kepler's, but he recognized that there's a higher authority under which all of this sits. Galileo, you've heard of him. The laws of nature, he said, which is what science effectively looks into and discovers the, the laws of nature, they're written by the hand of God. The human mind is the work of God and one of the most excellent. And sure, Galileo, some of you think, hang on a minute, didn't Galileo, wasn't he the controversial one who, who kind of rocked the whole science faith debate? No, absolutely not. A reading of, that's a, a, a total misreading of history. He rocked the church because the church at that time was connected with all kinds of power abuses and, and manipulations and, and uh, you know, self-interest and that sort of thing. But Galileo maintained a strong biblical faith to his end. Here's C.S. Lewis. Men became scientific because they observed and expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver, a legislator. Now, of course, okay, you, you throw back, but hang on a minute, there are some brilliant scientists these days who are absolutely convinced atheists who, wouldn't, who, who do go for the whole, you know, these things are in opposition. You've heard of Richard Dawkins, who wrote something called The God Delusion. Stephen Hawking died a few years ago, argued strongly against the existence of God. And friends, of course, I'm not, I, I cannot do any more than scratch the surface. Even I've got a big enough brain to go into their arguments. But let me just say this, uh, without being rude, we need to distinguish between uh, statements made by scientists and scientific statements. It's quite important that we do that. We bring a bit of discerning. I'm not going to you know, go further than that. We need, we need to, to, to bring some discernment to that. Stephen Hawking did write in a newspaper once. He said, there is no heaven or afterlife. That's just a fairy story for those who are afraid of the dark. Mike quoted that this morning. I found that quote too. I thought it was great. Uh, this guy, John Lennox, who wrote the book, he was asked to reply. Well, he did reply, and he wrote, atheism is just a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. These are two, and it's great, and it gets a bit of a giggle, and we go, yeah, yeah whatever. And those are brilliant, brilliant scientists with huge, great brains. But neither of those statements are scientific, are they? They are statements of belief. They're statements of belief. They're faith statements. They're not factual proof scientific inquiry statements. They're, they're statements of faith, of faith. Which one is true? Well, that's a different matter altogether. I'm just pointing out that scientists can say things which are not scientific. They are statements of faith. Dawkins actually wrote, in, foolishly in my view, atheists don't have faith. But actually his book, The God Delusion, which I have read, is essentially what he believes it is actually a, a, a collection of, I would, I would argue, faith statements, worldview arguments, that, that the philosophy of naturalism, which he adopts, and, and in which he places faith in the sense of he trusts it as the explanation for everything. And, base, and that is the basis on which he, 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 he goes about his kind of life and inquiry and, and has a go at Christians. But it is a faith statement. 
So no, Christian faith is not any kind of uh, fantasy. It stands up to rigorous scrutiny. We do know that, don't we? The Christian faith stands up to inquiry. It stands up to, in fact, Jesus, here's here's, uh, John to some extent inviting us into the inquiry and there'll be many, many pages of scripture where the same thing is true. See if these things are true. What do you think? And after, by the way, 2,000 years of very brilliant academic minds, the most clever people on the planet, setting out to disprove in scientific kind of terminology, setting out to disprove, setting out to pull apart, pull apart the arguments. Here we are 2,000 years later. Uh, you know, God is still on the throne and the church is still growing and we have our ups and downs, but there's many billions of people who still love the name of Jesus. And despite the best efforts of everybody and masses of clever scientists to go, no, it's, it's all a fantasy. Of course it's, it's not. It can't be disproved, can't be proved, but then that's true for so much. It's still growing. Doesn't prove that it's true, of course, any more than somebody can show that it's not. But the idea that it's not rationally based, that you have to kind of cut off your brain to be, you know, a follower of Jesus or quietly ignore some of the, count, the scientific kind of counter evidence. Oh, there's some uncomfortable stuff. We better just sweep that under the carpet. It's nonsense. Simply wrong. So, following the evidence wherever it leads, even if the outcome surprises you, as it did for a guy called Professor Anthony Flew not too many years ago, lifelong committed atheist who came finally to put his full trust in Jesus and wrote about it publicly. Uh, It caused quite a stir in the scientific community. For him, some of the evidence, he was a a biologist, some of the evidence was around DNA and the work that people have done, the biologists have done on DNA, coming to believe it is so complex, it is so unbelievably complex, the arrangements and the the, the combinations of arrangements, I'm speaking uh, lay language, not science language, uh, are so amazing that it is simply impossible not to believe that there is an arranger, is how he came to put it, and that there is a God. My whole life, he said, quote, has been guided by the principle of following where the evidence leads, and it's led me now to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. He was asked, well, what if people don't like it? He said, well, that's too bad. (laughs) quite like that. Let's hear it for Professor Anthony Flew. Paul said the same thing, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then we, we may as well, you know, believe in the tooth fairy, more or less. There's that vote. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What's he saying? He's saying... The resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just his, his coming and his, 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 uh, his life, but then his death, but then his resurrection, these are historically, historical events. There's, there's some rational basis for, 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 for seeking some evidence about these things. And if, and if they didn't happen, then the whole thing's a, a charade, and we, you know, we can go and eat more ice creams and do something different. following where the evidence leads. So the dividing line, back to the battleground thing, this image of science versus versus, you know, Christian faith. The dividing line is not between science and Christian faith. I hope we're getting that. The dividing line is not, that is not the battleground. The dividing line is between Christian faith, a worldview that sees, the, sees everything through this lens, and every other faith, every other worldview, atheism, Buddhism, consumerism, whatever. That's the dividing line. Do you get that? So if you, if you want one takeaway in terms of the, kind of the, brain, the brain image, remember, the dividing line is not between science and faith. These are not two things in opposition that we sort of compare and work out which, which side we're on. They're not on different sides. The thing that is on different sides 
is a Christian worldview, a Christian faith based on the uniqueness of Jesus, his revelation of the Father, his death on the cross, his resurrection to new life, his invitation to do life now and forever with him, that worldview and everything that follows from it and every other worldview. That's where the dividing line is. So to put up faith alongside science as if they're sort of rivals is a bit like saying, which is right or wrong? Is it, is it the apple or the golf club? It just makes no sense. makes no sense as a question. <clears throat> okay, let's challenge, challenge a couple more parts of this strange argument that we, that we have to sort of choose between science or, science or God. I say strange because I think the first one rely, it relies on a misunderstanding of the nature of science to some extent and certainly a misunderstanding on the nature of God. Let's take the first one first. So the claim is that science does or one day will explain everything. We just need to keep going. We're clever enough, we've got these great big brains, we just need to keep going and eventually science will do it. And the quest for truth can only be a scientific one based on rationally discerned data and conclusions. And science is amazing, but it has limits. It has limits. The idea that it's the only way to truth leads people tragically to conclude that scientific means the same as rational, that they are somehow the same thing. And friends, we need to distinguish again between those two things. Things that are rational have a huge scope of which Science is, is just a part. If Hills makes a cake, as she's, a, she's a brilliant cake maker, far better idea than me trying to make a cake, that wouldn't go well for us. Uh, a biochemist could tell us a lot about uh, the uh, structure of the proteins and the fats and stuff that go in the cake. A nutritionist could tell us a lot about the, the calorific values and, and what it's going to do to our waistline and that kind of thing. A chemist, no doubt, could tell us something about the, the molecular structure and, and, and whatnot involved. Uh, and the physicists could tell us about the, con you know, the, the different physical conditions that are going on when we heat them and mix them and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And all of, all of that would be really interesting and in insightful and is the, is the province of scientific processes. Those things are, if you like, true and rational. But the scientist has absolutely nothing to say about why Hills has made the cake. They can't answer that question. They don't know. Scientific inquiry doesn't lead to that. Science, as Mike was saying this morning, is generally amazing at answering what questions and how questions. It's very, very poor on why questions, because it doesn't set out to do that. Again, shorthand for a, a bigger discussion. Why is the water boiling? Well, because H2O molecules are being agitated by the heat energy coming from the flame and, or the ele electric thing and, and whatever. Why is, the, why is the water boiling? Because I'm making a cup of tea. They're both true, right? They're both rational. different explanations of truth coming from different positions. And the science position is not the only explanation. Both are needed, then, if we want a full explanation of what's going on. For the geeks amongst you who know who Aristotle is, several centuries ago, if not thousands of years ago, he, he pointed out the difference, apparently, so says uh, John Lennox in this book, even back then, between what he called material causes, that's the molecules and the heat and the ingredients in the cake and so on, that's what science is all about, and final causes, which is Hills's desire to bless a neighbor with the cake. That's why she made the cake. You didn't know that, and science couldn't discover it, or why I want a cup of tea to, to, to quench my thirst. So saying that Christian faith and science are in conflict, it misunderstands the nature of, of science, Look to that just a little bit. Also, uh, just the nature of God as well, or at least the God of the Bible. Where would you say that most people get their notion of God from? This is a really topical question for us in the room, isn't it? Where do people get their notion of who God is from? And we might have a variety of questions, answers to that. Could be maybe they had a bit of sort of Sunday school stuff in the past, or maybe there's some RE lessons at school. Where did you get your notions of God for when you were when you were growing up? 
and, and if we asked 100 people on the high street, where would they get the answer to that question from? Maybe, you know, film or songs or social media or, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of, of places, wouldn't there, where they get a, a view from. And a lot of assumptions brought to it. A lot of assumptions brought to that. Reminder, what, what are we talking about tonight? Something about where take, following where the evidence leads. Somebody told me a, long, uh, a while ago, they couldn't be a Christian because they couldn't believe in a God who was angry and disappointed with, with her when she broke his rules. I had compassion on her, but I was able to say, well, I, don't, I, I couldn't believe in a God like that either. That's not the God that I believe in, and that's certainly not the God of the Bible. She made a whole load of assumptions about who God was based on some duff information, essentially. Where do people get their notion of who God is? By the way, in brackets, we haven't got time to look at this today. Friends, if people were to get something of their notion of God, who God is and what he's like from the church, from his people, what would they conclude about God? I've always found that a really challenging question. If we are the only Bible, if you like, that people read, you know, what would they conclude about the God we believe in? Here's C.S. Lewis, though, who says this. It's not as though many people have examined the person of Jesus and found him wanting. They simply haven't examined him at all, which isn't a condemning thing or a, or a critical thing to say. It's just a statement of reality. So there's a, so much misunderstanding of the nature of who God is. So when, when, when people say that they reject Christianity, probably what they're rejecting is, is a version of faith that we wouldn't recognize at all, or some, some uh, assumed version with, with all kinds of different things going on which aren't, aren't true. So it's not surprising, is it, that the God of the gaps still exists? Going back to that phrase. It's still a thing, a kind of cosmic force that people must invent to uh, kind of deal with the bits that we don't really understand. Like the ancient people didn't understand lightning, so they invented a god of lightning to explain it. And now that science has shown us what lightning is, well, we don't need that god anymore, right? So the god of the gaps gets shrunk. Well, of course, if you define God in that way, going back to the misunderstanding about the nature of God, if you define God in that way, of course you will always find that science is in opposition to your god. But we don't define God in that way. What a, what a weedy kind of a God that would be anyway, by the way, forged in the mind of human beings just to help us understand some things that we don't understand yet. What kind of God would that be? The God of the Bible, the God that Christians have believed and trusted and followed and worshipped and loved and found life in is so very different. He's not a God of the gaps. He's the God of the whole thing. He's not a God of the gaps. He's a God of the whole show. He set the whole thing running, including down the line us, who he loves as the pinnacle of everything that he made. Why? Because he loves us. He wanted to make a people that he could love, who would love him back, made for relationship, made for presence, made for interaction. Created the heavens and the, uh, and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. He didn't come down from the heavens. So, so many of the ancients thought that God came down from the heavens and or was formed from the earth. No, he made the heavens and the earth, our God. He's the God who made all the bits of the universe that we don't understand as well as the few bits that we do. When Isaac Newton, you've heard of him, discovered the law of gravitation, he didn't say, well, now we've got a law of gravity. We don't need God. What he did do was write perhaps the most famous scientific book in the whole of 
scientific history called the Principia Mathematica, he, in which he expressed this, his, his hope that his calculations and observations would help to persuade a thinking person to believe in God. In other words, to do what? To follow the evidence and to see where it leads, even if the outcome is unexpected or surprising. See, the more I understand, and probably you're the same, about the, about the complexity um, of, a, of an incredible piece of art, or the skill involved in making a, a brilliant um, you know, dessert, or an amazing piece of music, the more I kind of respect the mind, the creative mind of the person who, who produced that, the creator. The more Newton understood the way the universe worked, the more he was blown away by the one who made it. Because he wasn't stuck in this God of the gaps, it's this or this. No, it's this. <laughs> it's the God who made everything, including me, including my mind. Remember what he said about the mind? And with that incredible God-given mind, he's then able to make these explorations into the thing that he's exploring. He discovers this law, is able to articulate it, write a book about it, and give all the glory to God, and hope that in this extraordinary bit of discovery, he'll persuade some other thinking people to find their way to God too. Francis Bacon, 17th century, father of modern science, he's called apparently. He said that God wrote two books, Scripture and Creation. And he loved bringing his spirit of scientific inquiry to, to both, seeing where the evidence leads. It led him to marvel at the wonders of God. I'm going to be really honest and say in our household, uh, as much as he's been a hero all of my lifetime, and I could watch end-to-end -end on repeat his nature programs, it makes me so very sad that Sir David Attenborough who has been up close and personal to the very best that the natural world has to offer in terms of seeing it and witnessing it, still doesn't believe that there's a, an intelligent designer behind it all. I pray that he does before he, he dies. Friends, we've just scratched the surface in what was only a little bit more than 15 minutes. Really, really scratched the surface. I haven't even come close to, to, to you know, picking the scab off some of those old things about... Um, Okay, let's go into creation and, and evolution. And how do we reconcile what science is saying about our origins with some of the Bible accounts? Um, although, hint, there are some completely satisfactory ways in which we can reconcile uh, what scientists are discovering and have discovered with things that the Bible accounts say. Two or three weeks ago, in our big questions, we were look, looking just at that very thing. How do we read the Bible? How, how about the reliability of the Bible? So much is in the way that we, we understand that book to be and things that appear to be contradictions or are thrown out as contradictions, as if it's obvious that they're contradictions, actually turn out not to be when we understand a little bit more how to read the book and, uh, and are enlightened in that way. We haven't said anything about dinosaurs. We haven't said anything about miracles. We haven't said anything about supernatural, although I hope it will be really, really obvious that within this framework, if we're not pitting this against this, the scope for supernatural, if we believe in a God who's set the whole thing running, he can do what he likes by definition. Evidence for the resurrection on which the whole thing hinges in many ways. Back to John. Just back to John. I, I've presented a few bits of, of evidence, if you like, just a few bits of testimony about who Jesus is, he's saying. This is what John's saying. He, I've just given you some, some, a few bits of who he was, what, what he was like, what he said, what he, what he said to other people, um, what he did for other people. The kind of character that he was, the, the effect that he had on people. This is John, who walked closely with him for, for three years. You, this unique person, the testimony of those who met him as well, whose lives then were, were transformed by him. Not so that you can have a few more answers up your sleeve. 
just get a few more marks or feel a bit less threatened when somebody says science has disproved Christianity or whatever. John says, no, so that you can get to know him. It's so that you can get to know him. It's so that you can get to know him. I was once at university and I remember distinctly uh, being on the edge of a conversation where a friend of mine had a, an, an imaginary plate of bacon and eggs and he was talking to another person who was skeptical and came from a very scientific, intelligent kind of background. And this person had been making some inquiries and he had been doing some, trying to follow where the evidence led. And he had been looking at the evidence for the resurrection. And he didn't have a good answer for it. And he didn't, certainly couldn't understand why the tomb was empty. But he got to a point, my friend said, it's as though I've got a plate here and we've got some eggs and bacon on it and we've got some mushrooms and sausage and you know, all of that sort of other lovely stuff. And we could say quite a lot about that and, and we've been exploring that quite a bit, haven't we? We, we, we? we know where the bacon came from, we know, you know what kind of pigs were killed to create the, the sausages and how much the eggs weighed and you know, da, 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 all of that stuff. We, we've, and that's really, really good. We've understood a lot about that. He said, but in the end, the point of the plate, plate, plate of bacon and eggs is to eat it is to experience those internally. That's the point. And John is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, for some people, this, this route to faith will be really important. Not everybody, by the way. Some people come to faith without those kinds of things. A bunch of people in the Middle East are coming to faith through dreams, seeing the, the man in white who is Jesus, bypassing all of the, the evidence, if you like, just going straight in at that. But for some, the evidence is really important. And for all of us, I trust, it's really important that, that there is evidence. But for some, it will be important to just to understand, yeah, the evidence leads to these things. But in the end, in the end, in the end, says John, what you need to do is to lean your full weight on him, is to accept him, is to know him, is to invite him into your life, is to surrender to him as Lord, as Savior, as the one who went to the cross, who rose again, for you to know forgiveness, for you to know healing, for you to know a new path, for you to know something of connection with the Father who made you to love you. Will you let the evidence take you there? It's what John is urging. And it's what we're urging one another, friends, in this place. It's what we've been doing for 2,000 years as the church, isn't it? Encouraging one another with that and then encouraging others to, 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 to take the same route. Let me end then just with what was over the Cavendish Laboratory door is over the Cavendish Laboratory door in Cambridge University right now has been for a couple hundred years. Great are the works of the Lord. Great. So great. Great, great, great. And we all get to discover how great they are. I think scientists have a unique insight into how great so many of them are in nature. But great are the works of the Lord in nature, in history, in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, in Calvary, in the empty tomb, in Pentecost, and in the lives of all who welcome him in. They are pondered then by all who delight in them. Amen.